When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good evening, my friends, and welcome to another episode of Terror Radio Podcast. If this is your first time joining me, then welcome. This is a podcast dedicated in bringing you the best of horror and thriller, old-time radio broadcasts, as well as original stories. I'm your host, Keith, a.k.a. The Radio Show Nerd, and we have four days and counting. I'm wishing you all a very eventful, fun, but yet safe Halloween weekend. The episode tonight is entitled Tales at the Witching Hour, meaning all the radio plays featured tonight are just pure narrations, which I love. So, without further ado, this is Terror Radio. We'll start off the show with an original narration, narration, narration entitled My Crazy Roommate. It's a good one. And following that are the two radio series, Tales of the Frightened, followed by Sleep No More. Now, a quick rundown on both programs. Tales of the Frightened was a syndicated show that featured five-minute short horror vignettes, which originally were featured on the Radio Reader's Digest show. It came about in 1957, and the stories were narrated by the great Boris Karloff and written by author Michael Avalon. The three stories tonight are Don't Lose Your Head, Voice from the Grave, and Nightmare. Following that, we have the radio series Sleep No More. And this was created and narrated by actor Nelson Olmsted and ran on NBC from 1956 to 1957. And this series were adaptations of horror and science fiction stories. The stories featured tonight will be Death of Olivier Basale, I'm sure I destroyed that name, and Fishhead. This was first broadcasted on December 12th, 1956. And after that, we have Marius, which was first broadcasted on November 14th, 1956. So, you know the drill. Sit back, turn down the lights, and listen to My Crazy Roommate, followed by Tales of the Frightened, and concluding with Sleep No More. My Crazy Roommate. 
I can hear him walking around downstairs, talking to himself loudly in a gravelly voice, throwing various items on to the floor, just being an absolute basket case. For God's sakes, it's the middle of the night. What the hell is he looking for? Wait a minute. It just went silent. Did he leave? I should go check, but I'm terrified to move. You know what? I should just call the police. Oh, now where did I put my phone? Everyone told me my roommate was crazy, but I wouldn't listen. What can I say? I hated being alone in this huge house with no one to talk to. I felt isolated and was in desperate need of some kind of interaction or camaraderie, if you will. And of course, he took advantage of my, (laughs) let's be real, passive and overly giving persona and ran amok for months. Drunken bouts, which led to over-the-top temper tantrums, a barrage of one-night stands, numerous excuses for his inability to pay the rent on time, and the list went on. I want to jump out of this bed and confront him, but I won't. Truthfully, I'm completely drained and just don't have the strength nor the backbone to face them. The opening and closing of doors reverberate throughout the stillness of the house. Inaudible mumbling seeps through the walls like an odorous stench. The muffled shuffling of feet has transformed into deafening stomps. I can feel my anxiety slowly rising like homemade bread in the oven. Damn! He's walking up the stairs. Each step echoes across the floorboards. The incoherent muttering is now a low and sinister hiss. The footsteps are drawing closer. This is absolutely nerve-wracking. I can see a shadow slither from underneath my bedroom door. I want to yell out, but I'm afraid to open my mouth. The door slowly opens. Through the darkness, I can see the outline of his silhouette standing in the doorway. I'm just going to lie here motionless, like a corpse. Maybe if I pretend to be asleep, he'll leave. He's moving closer to the bed. My heart just leapt into my throat. I'm just going to close my eyes and act as if he isn't here. I can feel his eyes on me. Don't move. Don't even breathe. I know you're awake. He whispers. Don't open your eyes. I know you're awake. His voice grows louder. Don't make a sound. Don't move a muscle. He steps closer 
to the bed. I know you're awake. His voice now fills the room and beats against the walls like a fist. Though my eyes remain closed, I know he's hovering over me, just waiting. Everyone told me my roommate was crazy. That's why I kicked him out two months ago and haven't heard from him since. So, who is this? Are you one of the frightened? It must have happened to you at some time in your life. You meet a completely strange set of people. They come into your life just as suddenly as they leave. And they leave you to wonder for the rest of your days. Was it real? Did you dream them all up? And why were you chosen of all people to encounter them? Here. Have a glass of port while I tell you the strange story of Henry Harper, a traveling salesman. It was in Shanghai, I think, shortly after the Second World War, that Henry Harper had his curious experience. Now, Henry Harper was a rug salesman, which has very little to do with the story, except perhaps to explain that he was a man who was used to hotels, sleeping away from home, uh, and constantly traveling in strange cities far from his native London. So it was that Henry Harper found himself in an obscure Shanghai hotel, a guest for one night. In the morning, he had an important appointment with one of the wealthiest dealers in the city. Henry Harper was tired. The noisy, jostling Shanghai streets, a veritable melting pot of races, creeds and colors, had given him a headache. His eyeballs were scorched from the afternoon sun. So it was that when night came, Henry Harper was more than ready for bed. He'd unpacked all his luggage, attired himself in pyjamas, and read himself to sleep, as has been his custom for many years. But he had fallen asleep with the lights on. It was perhaps an hour or two later that Henry Harper stirred restlessly in his bed. His eyes were still closed, but a curious scratching noise came to his ears. Now, Shanghai's street noises had abated somewhat. Now the scratching sound filled the tiny hotel room. Henry Harper sat erect, peeving, and opened his eyes to see what the disturbance was. Well, he was hardly prepared for the sight that greeted him. Seated at the dresser in the room, just at the foot of his bed, her back to him, was a lovely Eurasian woman, busily combing her hair as nice as you please. The woman's hair was fantastically long, its black length trailing down her shoulders to the floor. Henry Harper could only gape as the comb and the lady's hand ran briskly through the beautiful hair with easy feminine strokes. It was the noise of the comb drawing through the hair that had awakened Henry Harper. Before he could open his mouth to speak to the lady, she encountered some difficulty. The comb became snarled in the trunk of her hair. Without a moment's hesitation, the lady 
lifted her head off her shoulders and disentangled the comb from her hair. Henry Harper had seen enough. With terror chilling his brain, he sprang out of bed and flung into the room next to his like a wild man. Four bland Chinese were seated round a deal table having a quiet game of cards. Henry screamed to them about the woman in his room who had removed her head before his very eyes. The four Chinese smiled up at Henry Harper. Oh, that, they said in chorus, that's nothing. We can all do that. Whereupon they all, in turn, lifted their heads off their shoulders. So you see, Henry Harper had quite an experience. Of course, no one at the sanitarium believes this, but uh, there you are. I suppose people always expect traveling salesmen to have a lot of funny stories to tell. Oh, by the way, help yourself to a cigar while I step through the wall here and go down to the cellar for another bottle of port. I do hate to take the long way. Surely you must have read Hamlet at some time or other in your life. If you did, do you recall that line? There are more things in heaven and hell, Horatio, than ever dreamed of in your philosophy. Well, the strange tale that I'm about to tell you is something like that. My story has to do with traveling and automobiles and a little girl. Do you believe that the dead can influence the living? But come. Listen to the incredible history of Martin Cable and the little girl in the polka dot dress. The road was dark and winding that grim night that Martin Cable drove his sedan towards Webb Center. The rain slashed, howled, tore at the windows, and Martin Cable was worried. His headlights had fused out, and driving in unfamiliar territory down an unknown road on such a dreadful night was not the safest thing in the world. Martin Cable was due in Webb Center on an important business meeting that could mean a whole new life for him. And so he drove on, taking his chances with the weather, with the car, with his life. Suddenly, through the windshield wipers mopping furiously at the glass, Martin Cable saw a flash of something up ahead, a white face in the darkness. Hurriedly, he slammed on the brakes and the car swerved to a halt. Martin Cable peered out onto the road. There was a little girl standing there in a polka dot dress, the rain pelting at her viciously, making of her hair a tangled mess. The child's face was chalk white and ghostly, and before Martin Cable could ask her anything, she came forward and put one tiny hand on the car window and pointed down the road. Mister, her small voice was pitiful. You better turn left here. There's a big hole in the ground just ahead. You you can't go that way. Gratefully, Martin Cable thanked her and asked her if he could give her a lift home. She shook her head and indicated a grey cottage just to the right of the road. I'll be all right, she said. I live just there. So Martin Cable took the turn off and arrived safely at his destination. Tired and shaken, but thankful that the little girl had saved his life. 
The next day, when he inquired about the road, the hotel clerk told him that a rock slide had made an immense pit on the road that would kill anyone who fell into it. Well, Martin Cable completed his business in Webb Center, paid a visit to a toy store, and drove back the way he had come. He decided to repay the little girl for her kindness of the night before. And he drew his car up to the gray cottage, a peaceful serenity hung over the walls and the windows. Martin Cable, with his gift under his arm, knocked loudly on the little oaken door. A small, grey-haired woman came to see who it was, and Martin Cable introduced himself and explained his visit. He wanted to see the little girl, he said. What little girl, the woman asked. Martin Cable rushed on to tell about the rain and being lost and saved from certain death, and describe her to me, the lady said. What was she wearing? Confused, Martin Cable mentioned the polka dot dress. But he didn't understand until the lady shook her head sadly. Yes, she said, it was Madeline. Once a year she comes to that part of the road and warns some traveller away from the very spot. It's been like that for five years now. But Martin Cable was dumbfounded. What did the woman mean? Yet it was all very simple. Madeline was my daughter. And five years ago, she died in an accident at the place where she told you to turn. You see, she got run over by a car there. Curious, isn't it? A little girl returning like that to warn the unwary traveller away from death. Oh, oh, oh yes. Uh, if you're driving tonight, do be careful. There might be a nasty break in the road. <laughs> Your lungs are bursting for air. It seems as if the walls of your room are closing in on you, crushing you, crowding you, sealing you off from the rest of the world. And then you awake. It's only been a ghastly dream, a terribly vivid nightmare. But with your eyes open and your hands trembling and your body bathed in perspiration, you relax. At least you're in your own room safe. And it was only a dream. Or was it? This is a tale that the inmates of Bell Prison still whisper in the cell yards and corridors to this day. The story of John Day, a lifer, and his weird nocturnal dreams. It happened long ago, but cell 13, where it began, still enjoys its haunted history. Listen, and I'll tell you about John Day and his nightmares. One night at 12 midnight... The stone and steel corridors of row A rang with the hoarse, terrible shouts of a man screaming for the guards. The prisoners, so rudely awakened, would normally have grumbled and yelled their annoyance, but something in the horrible moans and sobbings issuing from cell 13 stilled their tongues. 
guards rushed to the cell and swung it open to find John Day crouched in the corner on the floor by his bed, now whimpering and crying, his hands to his throat. At the sight of the guards, he blurted about his nightmare. The hands, he babbled, the hands. Thick, calloused, lumpy hands, they were choking me. Oh, just a nightmare, the guards laughed. But that wasn't the end of it. It was only the beginning of many nights when Rowe would be similarly disturbed. John Day and his nightmare about someone strangling him became the talk of Bell Prison. And John Day himself, sentenced to life imprisonment, grew steadily thinner and paler. The warden refused to listen to his pleas for another cell. He wouldn't cater to the whims of convicts. The prison doctor insisted that John Day was only shamming because other than a loss of weight, he, he was organically and mentally sound. But still the nightmare persisted, and John Day's nocturnal outcries became a familiar sound that the prisoners accepted as another wriggle of their hard existence. But one night came a new sound. The escape sirens wailed over the yard, John Day had escaped, attacked a guard and gone over the wall. The entire organization of Bell Prison went into action. Guards with bloodhounds scoured the surrounding countryside and only two miles away, one guard with his dog came on a strange sight. A teamster with his heavy wagon pulled over to one side of the road and lying on the ground, Still in his prison uniform, his eyes bulging unnaturally in his head, lay John Day. He was dead. The guard approached the big teamster, a burly giant, and questioned him. The story was simple enough. John Day had halted him with a gun to make use of the wagon, and the teamster had fought back. Luckily, John Day's gun had misfired, and the man had been able to get his hands around his throat. The guard shone his flashlight on the teamster's hands. They were thick, callous. And dial your NBC station. Say, that sounds dreamy. It's Jimmy Dorsey and the fabulous Dorsey Orchestra, featured all this week on NBC Bandstand, along with MC Burt Parks and the top singing star in person every day. NBC Bandstand. That's the way to start the day. And now stay tuned for Sleep No More on NBC. This is Nelson Olmsted. Sleep No More. Think back in your chair and don't look into the shadows. In the shadows, there may be moving things. Tonight, it may be, you will sleep no more. Good evening. This is Ben Grauer introducing tonight's tale of terror. Told by Nelson Armstead on the National Broadcasting Company's presentation of Sleep No More. The story of terror 
can be as simple as a sheeted ghost rattling chains. It can be a complex and hidden world of horror, lurking in such unholy dimensions as only the dead and the moonstruck can glimpse. Or it can be those terrible, fathomless shadows which lie buried deep in the primitive mind of civilized man. And for this evening, well, Nelson Armstead, tell us about this evening's story. Once again, Ben, we have two stories tonight. The Death of Olivier Bicay by Emile Zola and Fishhead by Irvin S. Cobb. Fishhead is one of those tales that always makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. It's the fantastic story of a human monstrosity who was the veritable embodiment of a nightmare. Sounds promising. So let Nelson Armstead tell us about the man called Fishhead. It goes past the powers of my pen to try to describe Real Foot Lake for you so that you, hearing this, will get the picture of it in your mind as I have it in mine. It's the largest lake south of Ohio, lying mostly in Tennessee, but extending up across what is now the Kentucky line. It is, and always has been, a lake of mystery. In places it is bottomless. Other places, the skeletons of the cypress trees that went down when the earth sank still stand upright so that if the sun shines from the right quarter and the water is less muddy than common, a man, peering face downward into its depths, sees below him the bare top limbs upstretching like drowned men's fingers, all coated with the mud of years and bandaged with tenons of green lake slime. In still other places, the lake is shallow for long stretches, no deeper than breast high to a man but dangerous because of the weed growth and the sunken drifts which entangle a swimmer's limbs. Its banks are mainly mud. Its waters are muddied too, being a rich coffee color in the spring and a copperish yellow in the summer. And the trees along its shore are mud-colored clear up to their lower limbs after the spring floods, when the dried sediment covers their trunks with a thick, scrofulous-looking coat. There are stretches of unbroken woodland around it, and slashes where the cypress trees rise countlessly like headstones for the dead snags that rot in the soft ooze. There are long, dismal flats where in the spring the clotted frog spawn cling like patches of white mucus among the weed stalks. And at night, the turtles crawl out to lay clutches of perfectly round white eggs with tough, rubbery shells in the sand. There are bayous leading off the nowhere and sloughs that wind aimlessly like great blind worms, finally to join the big river that rolls a few miles to the westward. Real Foot Lake is a wonderful place for fish, bass and crappie and perch and the snotted buffalo fish. How these edible sorts live to spawn and how their spawn in turn live to spawn again is a marvel, seeing how many of the big fish-eating cannibal fish there are in Real Foot. Here, Bigger than anywhere else, you find the garfish, all bones and appetite and horny plates, with a snout like an alligator, the nearest link, naturalists say, between the animal life of today and the animal life of the reptilian period. But the biggest of them all are the catfish. These are monstrous creatures, these catfish of real foot, scaleless, slick things with corpsey dead eyes and poisonous fins like javelins and huge whiskers dangling from the sides of their cavernous heads. 
six and seven feet long they grow to be, and weigh 200 pounds or more. And they have mouths wide enough to take in a man's foot or a man's fist, and strong enough to break any hook save the strongest, and greedy enough to eat anything, living or dead or putrid, that the horny jaws can master. Oh, but they are wicked things, and they tell wicked tales of them down there. They call them man-eaters, and compare them in certain of their habits to sharks. Fishhead was a piece of this setting. He fitted into it as an acorn fits its cup. All his life, he had lived on real foot, always in the one place at the mouth of a certain slough. He'd been born there of a Negro father and a half-breed Indian mother, both of them now dead. And the story was that before his birth, his mother was frightened by one of the big fish so that the child came into the world most hideously marked. Anyhow, Fishhead was a human monstrosity, the veritable embodiment of a nightmare. He had the short, stocky, sinewy body of a man, but his face was as near to being the face of a great fish as any face could be, and yet retained some trace of human aspect. His skull sloped back so abruptly that he could hardly be said to have a forehead at all. His chin slanted off right into nothing. His eyes were small and round with shallow, glazed, pale yellow pupils. And they were set wide apart in his head. And they were unwinking and staring like a fish's eyes. His nose was no more than a pair of tiny slits in the middle of a yellow mask. His mouth was the worst of all. It was the awful mouth of a catfish, lipless and almost inconceivably wide, stretching from side to side. Also, when Fishhead became a man grown, his likeness to a fish increased, for the hair upon his face grew out into tightly kinked slender pendants that dropped down either side of the mouth like the beards of a fish. If he had any other name than Fishhead, none excepting himself knew it. As Fishhead he was known, and as Fishhead he answered. Mainly he kept to himself with no kith nor kin, nor even a friend, shunning his kind and shunned by them. His cabin stood just below the state line, where the mud slough runs into the lake. It was a shack of logs, the only human habitation for four miles up or down. If the real footers shunned Fishhead by day, they feared him by night and avoided him as a plague, dreading even the chance of a casual meeting. For there were ugly stories about Fishhead, stories which all the Negroes and some of the whites believed. They said that a cry which had been heard just before dusk and just after skittering across the darkened waters was his calling cry to the big catfish. And at his bidding, they came trooping in, and that in their company, he swam in the lake on the moonlit night, sporting with them, diving with them, even feeding with them on what manner of unclean things they fed. The cry had been heard many times, that much was certain. Also, that the big fish were noticeably thick at the mouth of Fishhead Slough. No native real footer, white or black, would willingly wet an arm or a leg there. Here Fishhead had lived, and here he was going to die. The Baxters were going to kill him. And this day in late summer was to be the time of the killing. The two Baxters, Jake and Joel, were coming in their dugout to do it. This murder had been a long time in the making. The Baxters had to brew their hate over a slow fire for months before it reached the pitch of action. 
They were poor whites, poor in everything, repute in worldly goods and standing. A pair of fever-ridden squatters who lived on whiskey and tobacco when they could get it, and on fish and cornbread when they couldn't. The feud itself was of month standing. Meeting Fishhead one day in the spring, the brothers had accused him, wantonly and without proof, of running their trout line and stripping it of the hooked catch, an unforgivable sin among the water dwellers and shanty boaters of the South. Seeing that he bore this accusation in silence, only eyeing them steadfastly, they had been emboldened then to slap his face, whereupon he turned and gave them both the beating of their lives. They swore that they would get him. There'd been no hitch or mishap. No one had been abroad in the late afternoon to mark their movements. And in a little while, Fishhead ought to be due. Jake's woodsman's eye followed the downward swing of the sun speculatively. The shadows thrown shoreward lengthened and slithered on the small ripples. The small noises of the day died out. The small noises of the coming night began to multiply. The green-bodied flies went away, and big mosquitoes with speckled gray legs came to take their place. The sleepy lake sucked at the mud banks with small mouthing sounds, as though it found the taste of the raw mud agreeable. Bull bats began to flitter back and forth above the tops of the trees. A pudgy muskrat, swimming with head up, was moved to slide off briskly as he met a cottonmouth moccasin snake, so fat and swollen with summer poison that it looked almost like a legless lizard as it moved along the surface of the water in a series of slow, torpid S's. Directly above the head of either of the waiting assassins, a compact little swarm of midges hung, holding to a sort of kite-shaped formation. But the two brothers in their dugout gave heed to nothing except the one thing upon which their hearts were set and their nerves tensed. Joel gently shoved the gun barrels across the log, cuddling the stock to his shoulder and slipping two fingers caressingly back and forth upon the triggers. Jake held the narrow dugout steady by a grip upon a fox-scraped tendril. A little wait, and then the finish came. Fishhead emerged from the cabin door and came down the narrow footpath to the water and out upon the water on his log. He stood there erect, his chest filling, his chinless face lifted up, and something of mastership and dominion in his poise. And then his eye caught what another's eyes might have missed, the round twin ends of the gun barrels, the fixed gleam of Joel's eyes aimed at him through the green tracery. In that swift passage of time, too swift to be measured by seconds, realization flashed all through him, and he threw back his head still higher and opened wide his shapeless trap of a mouth, and out across the lake, he sent skittering and rolling his cry. And in his cry was the laugh of a loon and the croaking bellow of a frog and the bay of a hound, all the compounded night noises of the lake. And in it, too, was a farewell and a defiance and an appeal. The heavy roar of the duck gun came. At 20 yards, the double charge tore the throat out of him. He came down face forward upon the log, and then the blood came out of his mouth. And Fishhead, in death still as much fish as man, slid, flopping headfirst off the end of the log and sank face downward slowly, his limbs all extended out. One after another, a string of big bubbles came up to burst in the middle of a widening, ready stain on the coffee-colored water. The brothers watched this, held by the horror of the thing they had done, and the cranky dugout, having been tipped far over by the recoil of the gun, took water steadily across its gunwale. And now there was a sudden stroke from below upon its careening bottom. And it went over, and they were in the lake. But 
the shore was only 20 feet away, the trunk of the uprooted tree only five. Joel, still holding fast to his shotgun, made for the log, gaining it with one stroke. He threw his free arm over it and clung there, treading water as he shook his eyes free. Something gripped him. Some great sinewy, unseen thing gripped him fast by the thigh, crushing down his flesh. He uttered no cry, but his eyes popped out and his mouth fed in a square shape of agony and his fingers gripped into the bark of the tree like grapples. He was pulled down and down by steady jerks, not rapidly, but steadily, so steadily. And as he went, his fingernails tore four little white strips in the tree bark. His mouth went under. Next, his popping eyes, then his erect hair, and finally his clawing, clutching hand. And that was the end of him. Jake's fate was harder still, for he lived longer, long enough to see Joel's finish. He saw it through the water that ran down his face, and with a great surge of his whole body, he literally flung himself across the log and jerked his legs up high into the air to save them. He flung himself too far, though, for his face and chest hit the water on the far side. And out of this water rose the head of a great fish, with the lake slime of years on its flat black head, its whiskers bristling, its corpsey eyes alight, its horny jaws closed and clamped in front of Jake's flannel shirt. His hand struck out wildly and was speared on a poisonous pin. And unlike Joel, he went out of sight with a great yell and a whirling and churning of the water that made the cornstalk circle in the edges of the small whirlpool. But the whirlpool soon thinned away into the widening rings of ripples. And the cornstalks quit circling and became still again. And only the multiplying night noises sounded about the mouth of the slough. The bodies of all three came ashore on the same day, near the same place. Except for the gaping gunshot wound where the neck met the chest, Fishhead's body was unmarked. But the bodies of the two Baxters were so marred and mauled that the real footers buried them together on the bank without ever knowing which might be Jake and which might be Joel. This has been Irvin S. Cobb's short story, Fishhead, as told by Nelson Armstead. Now, Mr. Armstead, about the second story? Well, have you ever experienced the terrifying thought that someday you might, by some accident, be buried alive, abandoned, given up as dead? The famous Frenchman, Emile Zola, must have had such a thought, for he wrote the weird tale we'll hear now, The Death of Olivier Bicaille. <laughs> It was on a Saturday at six o'clock in the morning that I died. My poor wife had been bending over a trunk where she was looking for some linen. When she straightened up and saw my staring eyes, my rigid body, my chest quiet, she ran to me thinking I had fainted. She pressed my hands and looked into my face and then a terror took hold of her and she cried, Oh Lord, oh Lord, he's dead. I heard everything, but the sounds were faint and seemed to come from a distance. Only my left eye still perceived a confused light, a whitish glimmer, in which the objects of the room melted together. My right eye was completely paralyzed. This swoon 
which overtook my entire body like a thunderbolt, prostrated me completely. My will was dead, not a fiber of my nerves obeyed me. Only within my impotent, inert frame, thought remained. Slow, languid, but perfectly clear. Could this then be death? Even as a child, I was afraid of death. I had always believed I wouldn't live and that they would soon bury me. And this thought of the soil horrified me. I could never accustom myself to it, even though it haunted me constantly. And in growing up, I had always retained this fixed idea and this fear. All this was passing through my mind while my dear Marguerite continued to weep beside me. It troubled me, not knowing how to calm her, not being able to tell her that I wasn't suffering. If death was nothing but this swoon of the flesh, then indeed I was wrong to have feared it so. It was actually a feeling of well-being, a great repose, in which worry and trouble were left behind. Poor Marguerite. Now she was alone. She kissed my hands and cried out repeatedly, Olivier, answer me, answer me. Oh, he is dead. But I couldn't possibly be dead. I would wake up soon, surely. Yes, presently I would lean over and take Marguerite in my arms. Presently, when she came to me again, I would murmur very low so as not to frighten her while I kissed her cheek. I'm only sleeping, my dearest. Don't you see that I'm alive and that I love you? The next moment, I heard a voice which I recognized. It was that of the old lady, Madame Gabin, who lived in the same floor. I felt her approaching. She looked at me, touched me, and then murmured gently, Oh, my poor child. My poor child. Madame Gabin took possession of the situation and quieted Marguerite as much as she could. And suddenly the misty light that I could still observe with my left eye disappeared. Madame Gabin had just closed my eyes, though I had not felt the touch of her finger on my eyelid. When I at last understood, a chill began to creep down my backbone. Then Madame Gabin spoke. You know, my dear, we must think about formalities. The announcement to the city hall and all the details of the funeral. You're in no state to think about that now, and I don't want to leave you alone. But if you will permit me, I'm going to see if Monsieur Simonot is at home. Well, Marguerite didn't answer. However, I wished that she would have refused the services of this Simonot. I had seen him three or four times during my short sickness. He was a big fellow, very handsome, very strong. I detested him, perhaps because of his manly appearance. The evening before he had come in and it had pained me to see him sitting next to Marguerite. She appeared so pretty, so white beside him. Simono came, murmured his sympathy, and left to make arrangements. As the room became silent again, I asked myself whether this nightmare would last very long. I must be alive, for I sensed everything that was going on. I tried to imagine exactly what had happened to me. It must be one of those strokes of catalepsy about which I had heard. When I was very young, I had experienced trance-like fits which lasted several hours. Evidently, it was a crisis of this sort which now made my body rigid, as though life had left it, and which deceived everyone around me. But my heart would begin beating again. Blood would course through my veins once more. I would awaken, and I would console Marguerite. In reasoning thus, I found some peace for myself. Hours passed. Simonot reappeared, whispering to Madame Gabin that the funeral was set for 11 o'clock the next day and that the doctor for the dead would soon come. The doctor for the dead. He would do what would be necessary to revive me. I waited for him with great impatience. He came that night, not even excusing himself for being so late. He lost no time. I gathered he was tired, impatient, and in a hurry. Did he touch my hand? 
Did he listen for my heartbeat? I don't know. But it seemed to me that he looked at me with a great indifference. A moment later, he was gone. It was my life that had gone. Cries and tears and oaths stifled me, lacerated my convulsed throat, but no sound escaped. So this was the end. I was condemned. My last hope disappeared with this man. If I didn't awaken before 11 o'clock the next day, I would be buried alive. This thought was so horrible that I lost consciousness. I awoke when they placed me in the coffin and nailed the top in place. I had the sensation of riding on a rolling sea while they carried me out. Later, they took me out of the hearse. Priest mumbled some Latin phrases. Many feet moved about for a few minutes, and then suddenly I felt myself sinking. Ropes rubbed against the sides of the coffin, sounding like the strings of a double bass file. This was the end. A double concussion, violent and loud as a cannon, burst upon me near the left side of my head as the first shovelfuls of dirt hit the coffin. A second impact took place near my feet. Then another even greater than the last struck me to the center. So violent was it that I thought the coffin would break in two, and I fainted. How long did I remain thus? I could not say. In nothingness of whole eternity, in a single second, have the same duration. But little by little, confusedly, the consciousness of being came back to me. I tried to rise and struck my head violently. Was I finally coming out of the catalepsy, which had for so many hours given me the appearance of one dead? Well, yes. I, I could move. A last test remained to be made. I opened my mouth and screamed, Marguerite! My voice inside the closed box took on such a hollow sound that it frightened me. Almighty God, was it true? I was able to move. I was able to cry out loud that I was alive. And my voice would never be heard. I was completely surrounded, stifled inside the earth. Finally, in a fit of hopeless anger, I kicked both feet out terrifically and was amazed to hear part of the wood give way. Another sturdy kick, and my feet shot out into an open space. Next to me was a recently dug open grave. Just a small partition of earth to dig through in order to roll out into this empty space. Oh, God be praised. I was saved. Oh, but it was good to live. My first thought was to find Marguerite. But as I reached the road, a weakness came over me. And I fell forward heavily. For three weeks, I was unconscious. When I finally came to my senses, I found myself in a strange room. A man was there taking care of me. He told me simply that one morning he found me on Montparnasse Boulevard and had taken me to his home. He was an old doctor who'd given up his practice. When I began to thank him, he cut me short by saying the case had appeared interesting to him and that he wanted to study it. Further than this, I learned nothing. I regained strength slowly. But one June morning, I obtained permission to take a short walk and immediately set out to go to my old lodging. With difficulty, I reached it. And then a childish fear agitated me. If I presented myself suddenly this way to Marguerite, the shock might kill her. The best thing would be to see first the old neighbor, Madame Gabin. I decided to enter a little restaurant downstairs. I must have been unrecognizable. My beard had grown during my illness, and my face had become very thin. Then I heard two women of the house gossiping. 
They were talking about Marguerite. One was asking if she had decided as yet, and the other answered that she thought so. She said, Yes, Monsieur Simonot has been kind to her. He's wound up his father's affairs, and he has a lot of money, and he's offered to take her to the country with him to live with one of his aunts who wants a companion. It will certainly end in marriage. Hmm. Well, after all, said the other woman, the husband was no match for Monsieur Simonot. I never liked him. Always whining and not a penny. No, he was no husband for a woman with blood in her veins. When I again found myself in the street, I walked slowly and with difficulty. I didn't suffer much, however. I even smiled when I saw my shadow in the sun. Certainly, I was very thin. It was a singular idea for me to marry Marguerite. And I recall how tired she was of her home before she married me. <laughs> oh, the dear creature was always so good. But I'd never been her lover. It was a brother whom she mourned. Why should I disturb her life again? A dead man is not jealous. She could really be happy now. I would certainly not make the cruel mistake of coming to life. But since that time, I've traveled much and have lived in many lands. I'm a commonplace man who has worked and eaten like everyone else. Death no longer terrifies me. But it seems that he doesn't want me now, that I have no reason to live. And I'm afraid he may have forgotten me. Turn up the lights now. You can look around you. Nobody is there, really. Everything is all right. Isn't it? Well, Nelson Olmstead, uh, what's on the story list for next week? Two quite different stories, Ben. The first, The Horsehair Trunk by Dave Grubb is a story of revenge calculated to chill your spine. The second, A Friend to Alexander, is by James Thurber, who is noted principally for his humorous writings. Although I doubt if you'll find anything to laugh at in this little gem. And if you meet me here next week, I'll prove it. You've been listening to Sleep No More, an NBC Radio Network production directed by Kenneth McGregor. Mr. Olmsted's albums are recorded exclusively for Vanguard Records. Until next week, when Nelson Olmsted will again be here in person, this is Ben Grower bidding you good night.
lights. Sink back in your chair and don't look into the shadows. In the shadows, there may be moving things. Tonight, it may be, you will sleep no more. to get well, Marianne. I'm not going to die. I feel disappointed. No. No, it's not true. It's not. Now, though he couldn't see her face through the hot blur of fever, he could hear her crying, sobbing and shaking with her fist pressed tight against her teeth. Such a fool. On the eighth morning, Marius woke full of strange, fiery brilliance as if all his flesh were glass not yet cooled from the furnace. He knew the fever was worse, close to its crisis, and yet it no longer had the quality of darkness and mists. Everything was sharp and clear. The red of his necktie hanging in the corner of the bureau mirror was aflame. He could hear the minutest stirrings down in the kitchen, the breaking of a matchstick in Marianne's fingers as clear as a pistol shot outside her bedroom window. It was a joy. Marius wondered for a moment if he might have died. But if it was death, it was certainly more pleasant than he had ever imagined death would be. He could rise from the bed without any sense of weakness. And he could stretch his arms. And he could even walk out through the solid door into the upstairs hall. He thought it might be fun to tiptoe downstairs and give Mary Hen a fight. But when he was in the parlor, he remembered suddenly that she would be unable to see him. Then... When he heard her coming from the kitchen with his medicine, he decided to return. With the speed of thought, Marius was back in his body under the quilt again, and Marianne was coming into the bedroom with her large eyes wide and worried. She was such a fool, he thought. It had begun that way. It had been so easy, he wondered why he had never discovered it before. Within a few hours, the fever broke in great rivers of sweat. And by Wednesday... Marius was able to sit up in a chair. By the end of the month, he was back to work as editor of the Daily Argus. But even those who knew him least were able to detect in the manner of Marius Lindsley that he was a changed man and a worse one. And those who knew him best wondered how so malignant a citizen, such a confirmed and studied misanthrope as Marius, could possibly change into anything worse than he was. Some said that typhoid always burned the temper from the toughest steel, and that Marius's mind had been left a dark and twisted thing. At prayer meeting on Wednesday nights, the wives used to watch Marius's young wife and wonder how she endured her cross. She was such a pretty thing. One afternoon in September, as he dozed in the bulging leather couch of his office, Marius decided to try it again. The secret he knew lay somewhere on the brink of sleep. If a man knew that, any man, then he would know what Marius did. It wasn't more than a minute later that Marius knew that all he would have to do to leave his body behind was to get it from the couch. Presently, he was standing there, staring down at his heavy, middle-aged figure sunk deep into the cracked leather of the couch. I'm not dead, he thought, but here's my soul, my blasted, immortal soul, standing looking at its body. It was as simple as shedding a shoe. Marius smiled to himself. 
He would keep his secret even from Mary Ann, especially from Mary Ann. It would be fun to use as a trick, a practical joke, to set fools like his wife at their wit's edge. If only he could move things. If only the filmy substance of his soul could grasp a tumbler and send it chattering at Mary Ann's feet in the kitchen floor some morning. Or tweak a copy boy's nose. Or snatch a cigar from the teeth of Judge John Robert Gantz as he strolled home some quiet evening. Well, it was, after all, a matter of will, Marius decided. It was his own powerful and indomitable will that had made the trick possible in the first place. He walked to the edge of his desk and grasped at the letter opener on the dirty ancient blotter. His fingers were like wisps of fog that blew through a screen door. He tried again, willing it with all his power, grasping again and again at the small brass dagger until at last it moved a fraction of an inch. A little more. On the next try, it lifted four inches in the air and hung there for a second on its point before it dropped. Marius spent the rest of the afternoon practicing until at last he could lift the letter opener in his fist and drive it through the blotter so deeply that it bit into the wood of the desk beneath. Marius giggled in spite of himself and hurried around the office, picking things up like a pleased child. He lifted a tumbler off the dusty water cooler and stared laughing at it, hanging there in the middle of nothing. At that moment, he heard a copy boy coming for the proofs of the morning editorials, and Marius flitted quickly back into the cloak of his flesh. Nor was he a moment too soon. Just as he opened his eyes, the door opened, and he heard the drinking glass shatter on the floor. That evening, Marius said, I'm going to take a nap before supper, Mary Ann. Very well, said Mary Ann. He watched her young, unhappy figure disappearing into the gloom of the kitchen, and he smiled to himself again, thinking what a fool she was, his wife. He could scarcely wait to get to the Davenport and stretch out in the cool, dark parlor with his head in the beaded pillow. Now, thought Marius, now. And in a moment, he had risen from his body and hurried out into the hallway, struggling to suppress the laughter that would tell her he was coming. He heard her voice and was puzzled. She was saying, Oh, you must go. You mustn't ever come here when he's home. I've told you that before, Jim. What would you do if he woke up and found you here? Marius rushed to her side, careful not to touch her, careful not to let either of them know he was there, listening, looking, flaming hatred growing slowly inside of him. The man was young and dark and well-built and clean-looking. He leaned against the half-open screen door, holding Marianne's free hand between his own. His round, dark face bent to hers, and she smiled with a tenderness and passion that Marius had never seen before. And the man said, I know. I know all that. But I can't sit thinking about him beating you up that time. He might do it again, Marianne. He might. He's worse, they say, since he had the fever. Crazy, I think. I've heard him say he's crazy. Look, don't put it off anymore. Run away tonight. We can take a steamboat to Louisville and you can get a divorce and you never have to put up with him again. I got two tickets for Louisville right here in my pocket on the Nancy B. Turner. Lord Marianne, don't make me suffer like this. Thinking all the time about him coming at you with his cane and beating you. Maybe killing you. The woman grew silent and her face softened. And then she whispered, All right. 
All right, I'll do it. I'll go. Quick. All right. You meet me at the wharf at nine. Tell him that you're going to a prayer meeting. You'll never suspicion anything. All right. All right. Now go. Please. And he walked away, his heels ringing boldly on the bricks, lighting a cigarette, the match arching like a shooting star into the darkness of the shrubs. Marianne stood stiff for a moment in the shadow of the porch, her large eyes full of tears. Marius drew back to let her pass. He stood and watched her for a moment before he hurried back into the parlor and lay down again within his flesh and bone in time to be called for supper. went down to the dock and, searching the passenger list of the Nancy B. Turner, discovered that Marianne and the man had reserved two staterooms, number three and number four. Marius asked for stateroom number five, next to the room that was to be occupied by Jim O'Toole, the man Marianne was running away with. Marius was on the boat early, struggling with his small horsehair trunk, and presently he was in his stateroom. At nine o'clock, a man and a woman hurried up the gangplank together. The water lapped and gurgled against the wharf, and off over the river, lightning scratched the dark rim of the mountains like the sudden flare of a kitchen match. Marius lay in his bunk. He had stiffened as he heard Marianne's excited murmur suddenly just outside his stateroom door, and the voice of the man answering her, comforting her. Lightning flashed and flickered out again over the Ohio hills and lit the river for one clear moment. Marius saw all of his stateroom etched suddenly in silver from the open porthole. The mirror, the washstand, bowl, and pitcher. The horsehair trunk beside him on the floor. Marius smiled to himself, thinking how easy it would be, wondering why no one had thought of such a thing before. Marius rose and slipped past the sleeping porter, making his way for the white-painted handrail at the head of the stairway. Once, Marius laughed aloud to himself as he realized that there was no need to tiptoe with no earthly substance there to make a sound. He cut down the narrow stairway to the gallery. The Negro cooks sat around the long wooden table eating their supper. Marius slid his long shadow along the wall toward the row of kitchen knives lying freshly washed and home on the zinc table by the pump. He chose the longest of them all and the sharpest, a knife that would shear the ham clean from the hog with one quick upward sweep. In an instant, Marius swept the knife from the zinc table and darted into the gloomy companionway. The porter was still asleep, and Marius laughed to himself to imagine the man's horror at seeing the butcher knife, its razor edge flashing bright in the dull light, inching itself along the wall. But it was a joke he couldn't afford. He bent at last and slipped the knife cautiously along the threadbare rug under the little ventilation space beneath the stateroom door. And then, rising, so full of hate that he was half afraid he might shine forth in the darkness, Marius passed through the door and picked the knife quickly again in his hand. He stepped carefully across the worn rug toward the sleeping body on the bunk. He felt so gay and light he almost laughed aloud. In a moment, it would be over. And there would be one full-throated cry, and Mary Ann would come beating on the locked door, and when she saw her lover... 
With an impatient gesture, Marius lifted the knife. His arm flashed. It was done. Fainting with excitement, he leaned in the darkness to brace himself. His hand came to rest on the harsh, rough surface of the horsehair trunk. Oh, my Lord, screamed Marius. Good Lord. I'm in the wrong room. The wrong room. And he clawed with fingers of smoke at the jetting fountain of his own blood. show for tonight I always say our <laughs> that's the show for tonight I want to thank you all for listening and remember you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash terror 1970 or you can find me on Instagram at radio show nerd or on Twitter at radio show nerd one and if you want to drop me a line say hello make a request a suggestion a, even a critique, feel free to email me at radioshownerd at gmail.com. I also have a YouTube channel. Please check it out. Subscribe, like the videos. Highly appreciate it. I will be posting a special episode on Halloween. So, be sure to look out for that. And... If any of you have a particular radio series or radio episode you may want me to feature on Halloween, please feel free to drop me a message on my Facebook page or any of the other social media apps I'm on. Again, this is Keith, a.k.a. The Radio Show Nerd with Four Days and Counting. <laughs> Signing off. Take care, everyone.